0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For much of the 1990s, British goth punk band The Sisters of Mercy battled viciously with their record label East-West, having been put through a disastrous tour, the snap firing of a manager, canceled distribution in the States, and more. To fulfill their contractual obligation, singer Andrew Eldridge sent the label work from another project. East-West agreed this would cover their obligation without listening to it first. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Supposition number one, a microphone is a good platform for getting back at someone. Supposition number two, an entire recording studio is even better. Popular music is absolutely lousy with songs getting back at an ex-lover, from Waylon Jennings to Taylor Swift. The best-known revenge song is probably Carly Simon's You're So Vain, which has led to decades of speculation as to who the song was about and why. Could it be ex-lover Warren Beatty or Chris Christopherson, Sean Connery, or occasional duet partner Mick Jagger? Breakup songs aside, a fair number of tracks that you know by heart are actually clapbacks to the people in the mixing booth or the record label office. And by heart, I mean, of course, Ann and Nancy Wilson, rock and roll's Sisters of Awesomeness. Their inimitable hit, Barracuda, which bizarrely failed to crack the Billboard Top 10 in 1977, isn't about the Plymouth Fastback muscle car or even the sleek and toothy underwater killing machines. with arguably one of the greatest opening riffs in classic rock. You know what, strike that. That's one of the greatest opening riffs in rock and roll period. Barracuda was written by Anna Nancy Wilson, together with guitarist Roger Fisher and drummer Michael Derossier. It was written at a time when there was, we'll call it friction between the band and their label. The song appears on the album Little Queen, their first album with CBS Portrait Records. They had left their old label, Mushroom Records, after a contract dispute, and Mushroom was none too happy, in that Hart was supposed to give them another album. They not only sued the band for breach of contract and tried to block the release of the CBS album, but released Magazine, an album made up of songs that Hart had recorded but decided not to release, as well as some live recordings just to pad the runtime. The dispute dragged on, and eventually the court decided that Hart was free to sign with a new label, but Mushroom was owed another album. So Hart went back to the studio to re-record, remix, edit, and resequence the magazine recordings in a marathon session over four days. A court-ordered guard actually stood nearby to make sure none of the master tapes got erased. Ultimately, Hart came out on top as not only did Little Queen outsell magazines by a healthy margin, but the debacle gave the band the distinction of having all three of their albums on the charts at the same time. While that would be enough on its own, the court case wasn't the only reason that the Wilsons & Co. were mad at Mushroom Records. After the first album became a million-seller, Mushroom took out a full-page ad in Rolling Stone magazine touting the band's success using the headline, Million to One Shot Sells a Million. Okay, so far so good. The ad looked like the front page of a tabloid and included a photo from the Dreamboat Annie album cover photo shoot. The caption read, Hart's Wilson sisters confess it was only our first time, implying the sisters had had an incestuous lesbian affair. I don't want to prejudice the jury. You can see it for yourself on Vodacast. What's Vodacast? I'm so glad you asked. Open bracket, first name, close bracket. Vodacast is a podcast listening app. Yes, I know you already have one that makes it super easy for content creators to put additional content with the podcast so I can put pictures of all the fun and cool and weird and bizarre stuff I talk about. And it can even be synced to the audio. So when I'm talking about something and say there's a picture or some more information in Vodacast, boom, there it is. Or, you know, it will be, as I get better at using it. And it's still early days for the app as well. That just means you can get in before it's cool. So head on over to your app provider of choice and search for Vodacast. V-O-D-A-C-A-S-T. Shortly after this ad appeared, a Detroit radio promoter asked Ann Wilson where her lover was. She assumed he meant her then-boyfriend, band manager Michael Fisher. Like you would. And she said he was fine. When the reporter clarified he was referring to her sister, Nancy, Anne was understandably outraged and retreated to her hotel room. When she relayed the incident to Nancy, she too was outraged and joined Anne in a writing session. Nancy put suitably angry music to the words to complete the song comparing the sleazy side of music to a dangerous eel-like fish. The song became an enduring classic and Barracuda remains one of the band's signature songs. Actually, back when I was a burlesque dancer, side note, I did a routine to Barracuda for our Princess Bride show, a burlesque show of unusual size. So I had this uh, Barracuda hand puppet that took up half of my arm, and it was basically a Dance of the Seven Veils thing with cute little fish pasties. Anyway. Now, Barracuda was attached to an incident of severe irritation for the Wilson sisters, at al., again in 2008. During that year's presidential campaign, the song was used as the unofficial theme song for Republican vice presidential nominee Sarah Palin. The Alaska governor had apparently earned the nickname Sarah Barracuda as a high school basketball player. The day after it was played at the 2008 National Republican Convention, Anne and Nancy Wilson issued a statement. The Republican campaign did not ask for permission to use the song nor would they have been granted that permission. We have asked the Republican campaign publicly not to use our music. We hope our wishes will be honored. Spoiler alert, their wishes were not honored. As the Republican campaign pointed out, they had obtained the proper performance rights to the song from the record label and were under no obligation to get any further permission from anyone. Performance rights has a lower legal bar than if someone wanted to use it in, say, a commercial. With no legal recourse, the Wilson sisters retaliated in the media, telling Entertainment Weekly, Sarah Palin's views and values in NO WAY all caps, represent us as American women. We ask that the song Barracuda no longer be used to promote her image. The song Barracuda was written in the late 70s, as a scathing rant against the soulless corporate nature of the music business, particularly for women. While Hart did not and would not authorize the use of their song at the RNC, there's irony in Republican strategists' choice to make use of it there. The song's co-writer Roger Fisher was also anti-Palin, but he saw things differently, telling Reuters he was thrilled that the song was being used as it was, in his eyes, a win-win situation. He explained that while Hart gets publicity and royalties, the Republicans benefit from the ingenious placement of a kick-ass song. He added that he would donate some of his royalties from the use to the Obama campaign, and thus, the Republicans are now supporting Obama. See, kids, there's always a silver lining if you look for it. The unparalleled late great Freddie Mercury of Queen penned another musical hate letter, though this one is best known to fans who own the album A Night at the Opera, which this reporter still has on vinyl. Probably I have had two house fires, though. As the song Death on Two Legs was never released as a single, this track was dedicated to Norman Sheffield, Queen's former manager and co owner of Trident Studios. Mercury himself described the lyrics as, so vindictive that Brian felt bad singing it. He's referring, of course, to Brian May, who did backup vocals, as well as world-famous guitar. It opens with the line all my money. You want more? and has lyrics like was that fin on your back part of the deal, shark. And you're a sewer rat decaying in a cesspool of pride. Tell us how you really feel, Fred. The surviving band members noted the unhappy atmosphere in the Days of Our Lives documentary, explaining that they felt they were being done wrong as they kept producing hit singles and never seeing any real money. By way of example, at one point, drummer Roger Taylor was told... He couldn't hit the drums too hard because they couldn't afford new drumsticks. But as Taylor noted, you see the management running around in stretch limos and think, hang on, there's something not right here. The band Split from Trident Studios was unsurprisingly acrimonious, and this song acted as something of a final word from the band, the oral equivalent of the British two-fingered salute. As it appears on the album, the song was titled Death on Two Legs, parenthetical, dedicated to Even though the song didn't use his name or any overtly identifying characteristics, Sheffield tried to sue for defamation of character. This was something of a miscalculation on his part, as by doing so, he effectively admitted they had cause to dedicate this song to him. The parties eventually reached an out-of-court settlement, and despite extensive Googling, and I mean like past page five in the search results and who does that, I couldn't even find out which side had to pay. In his autobiography published in 2013, Life on Two Legs set the record straight. Oi, vey. Sheffield denied that he had mistreated the band in his capacity as manager, and cited the original 1972 contract between himself and Queen, which he included in the book in his defense. Naming his autobiography after the song, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. Now the music industry can be a harsh mistress. Record executives not only tell you how to live in the present day, they make up a punchier past for you, altering your history to help them sell records. And when you're no longer laying golden eggs for them, your goose is cooked. At least that's how the members of Pink Floyd felt. The album Wish You Were Here and the song titled Welcome to the Machine may have been statements, but their recording actually asked a question. What is the true cost of fame? The story of the album is in no small part also the story of founding member Sid Barrett. Barrett was the band's original lead guitar and vocal, but in the late 60s, dove headlong into heavy LSD use. His behavior became erratic and unpredictable, leading people to speculate that he may have been self-medicating schizophrenia. As his hold on reality became increasingly tenuous... The band finally made the painful decision to replace him, bringing on David Gilmour. Barrett's deterioration was the impetus behind one of the band's most enduring classics, Shine On You Crazy Diamond. If the title is written on three lines, you'll see the acronym SID. Barrett visited the band once in the studio virtually unrecognizable to his former bandmates and friends. It was the last time any of them would see him alive. Shine On bookends the album, dominated by a four-note guitar theme that Roger Waters, the guitarist who would fill the void as singer, thought sounded like Barrett's lingering ghost. Shine On contains the lyric, You were caught in the crossfire of childhood and stardom. They blamed the music industry for Barrett's decline. This can be seen again in the song Have a Cigar, with the famous line, Oh, by the way, which one's pink? And by the way, neophytes, none of them are named Floyd. Those lyrics are one half of a conversation between a record exec and the musicians he's trying to woo with promises of fame and fortune, not bothering to get to know them even the slightest bit first. The same sentiment makes up Welcome to the Machine. It tells the story of a record exec talking to a musician without caring in the slightest about that person, creating for them a marketable backstory, something they could package up and sell. The execs even write the creative's future, What do you dream? It's all right. We told you what to dream. The song is full of ominous tones and mechanical sounds, reflecting the cold, inhuman nature of the industry. Pink Floyd carries this message through to the album cover art. The front cover shows two men shaking hands in a business deal, with one of them actively on fire, literally being burned in the deal. On the back, A faceless businessman stands in a barren desert. If you find yourself compelled to pause the podcast to listen to Welcome the Machine, do check out the cover by the band Pinwheel. Oh, side note, my husband did a routine to that song, also in the Princess Bride show. Do not listen to the Queen's Reich version. Just just don't, just don't do it. The Shadow's Fall version is pretty good, too. Pretty faithful, with some extra harmonies mixed in. I like a cover that's equal parts faithful and inventive. The sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation, and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Now at the same time that Pink Floyd was dealing with their label, We had the launch of Virgin Records, which got a huge initial boost from artist Mike Oldfield and his hit, Tubular Bells. Oldfield was only 19 when he wrote this epic rock symphony, which, at 49 minutes, had to be split across both sides of the record. You see, children, back in the days of physical media… You guys have no idea how old I feel lately. I'm recording this just before Thanksgiving, and I referenced to someone that I thought was within 10 years of me, the WKRP in Cincinnati turkey drop episode, and he had never even heard of WKRP, he'd never even heard of the call letters, and oh, I just crumbled to dust and blew away in the breeze. Back on track, though. After the demo he recorded in his London flat somehow found its way into the hands of billionaire to-be Richard Branson. Branson signed Oldfield to a recording contract and sent him to re-record a new version of the album in their newly established Manor Recording Studio, where Oldfield played nearly every one of the instruments himself. The finished product would become the first release on Virgin Records and a critical and commercial hit, reaching number one on the UK album chart, and it remained on the charts for a record-shattering 280 weeks its fame was further cemented by director William Friedkin for the soundtrack of his 1973 horror classic The Exorcist. A movie whose filming many believe to have been cursed, but you know about that because you have the Your Brain on Facts book or the Your Brain on Facts audiobook, available most places now. The success of Virgin Records set Branson up to create a business empire that would extend to mobile phones, airplanes, and even space travel. Things were strained between Oldfield and Branson, right from Jump Street. Branson and an engineer remixed tubular bells without Oldfield's permission. Oldfield could politely be called a recluse, but Branson knew that they needed to capitalize on the song's popularity by getting Oldfield out there to perform it live. Branson even gave Oldfield his Bentley if he would just go on stage. Uh, The Bentley, as it would turn out, cost more in repairs than it would have cost Oldfield to buy outright. Branson also got considerably richer than Oldfield, As he was both the owner of the record album and Oldfield's manager, and it took time for any royalties to trickle in for Oldfield at his well below industry standard rate of 5%. The tax bill, on the other hand, those always come expeditiously. Rather than our usual assumption that instantly famous equals instantly rich, Oldfield was in debt more often than not and counseled by an accountant to move overseas as a tax exile. His contract with Virgin Records was grueling, requiring 13 albums over the next 17 years. Lawyers, or I guess solicitors, were brought in, and the pair were joined in a legal battle that dragged on for years, only barely managing to stay out of a courtroom. In 1990, Oldfield released his second-to-last obligatory album, Amarok, he decided to get his own back in a subtle way. The album was an hour-long, continuous stream of often discordant music and just outright noise, essentially guaranteed to be unplayable on the radio. Buried 48 minutes in, the semi-rhythmic cacophony is overlaid with staccato screeches. Though it would fail to grab the ear of the average person, young scouts and old sailors might recognize it as Morse code. What were the words? Well, let's just say the first word is the acronym for For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge, which, side note, is not where that word comes from, and eventually someday I'll do an episode about that, and almost no words in common usage began as acronyms. And the uh, the second word in the Morse code was OFF followed by the initials R.B. This was certainly not the sequel to Tubular Bells that the record execs had been pushing for. Oldfield would record that after signing with Warner Brothers. Things seem to be better between Oldfield and Branson now, though. They're able to share the occasional meal amicably, and Oldfield does get free flights on Virgin Atlantic, though they don't fly to his home in the Bahamas, so he rarely gets to use them. You know what could be useful, though? what Robert Evans calls the products and services that support this fine program. A lot of my friends have had babies in the past year or so, Uh, first children, all of them I've noticed, so I'm definitely going to recommend that they all check out the Healthy Postnatal Body Podcast with postnatal expert Peter Lapp. Peter answers all your postnatal health and fitness-related questions and does interviews with a wide variety of expert guests. Genuine experts. No goop stuff, okay? Subscribe to the Healthy Postnatal Body Podcast on your favorite podcast player. Learn more at HealthyPostnatalBody.com and be sure to download your free postnatal health guide. on your brain on facts I may not have all the answers but if your question is how can I find a sponsor for my small podcast I do have the only answer you need podcorn podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters and businesses many of them small businesses to create ad campaigns that work for both parties podcorn is easy to use free to set up You retain all of the rights to your podcast and everything else, and you get to tailor the ad campaign in a way that works for you and the sponsor, whether it's a host-read ad or an interview. You can get started today by going to Podcorn.com. It's like popcorn, but for podcasts, Podcorn.com. Mike Oldfield is far from the only artist to produce a deliberately unsaleable album to fulfill a contract obligation. Quality is subjective, of course, particularly in forms of artistic expression like music, so it's impossible to bake a requirement for quality music into a contract. Presenting now a short and by no means exhaustive or comprehensive list, of albums recorded for the sole and exclusive purpose of fulfilling a contract. There's one item of note I can only mention in passing, a Rolling Stones track called "Schoolboy Blues, which you may have to turn off Google Safe Search to look up. Almost everyone who's ever knowingly tuned to a classic rock station can sing along to the song Brown-Eyed Girl. After a pretty unhappy couple of years with his record label, BAM Records, in the mid-1960s, Van Morrison wanted out. Luckily for him, Warner Music stepped in and bought out his deal with Bang Records. Unfortunately, there was still one small contractual detail. Morrison was obliged to record exactly 36 songs for his old label which would also continue to earn royalties off anything he released for the first year after leaving them. Not a patient man at the best of times, Van did the only thing he could think of. He recorded more than 30 songs in a single session on an out-of-tune guitar about subjects as diverse as Ringworm, Blowing Your Nose, A Dumb Guy Named George, and whether he wanted to eat a Danish or a sandwich. Bang Records concluded that the songs were below the quality of Morrison's regular output, ya think? and deemed the bizarre collection unfit for release. The tracks would eventually see the light of day in the mid-90s and remain some of the weirdest, and often funniest, music ever recorded by a mainstream artist. Though if you want bizarre and funny, you need look no further than Frank Zappa. In early 77, Zappa wanted out of his deal with Warner Brothers and recorded Lather with umlauts over the A, so Luther? Luther? Luther. We'll go with Luther. An eight sided, three hour quadruple album of brand new material. All done and dusted, he thought. No, said the record label. You owe us four individual albums to fulfill the contract. So Zappa reformatted the whole thing into the four required albums but Warner Music wasn't having that either, and still wouldn't release them. They not only refused to let Zappa out of his contract, they also didn't pay him. In the pre-internet age, Zappa did the only thing he could think to do. He took one of the test pressings to KROQ in Los Angeles and played the whole set on the air as an exclusive. He also asked his fans to record it off the radio, giving them essentially permission to bootleg it. Warner Music would release some of the tracks from Lüther later that year while they and Zappa were tied up in court and he was not recording. They eventually released the bulk of the album in 1996, three years after Zappa's death. To say that Zappa was prolific is to damn with faint praise. Lüther was his 65th album. Before releasing his own unsellable but required albums, the Purple One himself, the late great artist formerly and then again known as Prince, changed his name to the famous unpronounceable gender-mixing squiggle. He also performed with the word slave written across his face, making it even trickier for Warner Brothers to market him in hopes of being more trouble than he was worth. He began churning out albums at a prodigious rate. The last album of his contract, Chaos and Disorder, was a collection of dodgy leftovers and tracks otherwise unsuitable for a proper album. The first album he released with his new label, EMI, was back up to its usual standards. Its title? Emancipation. Hey, you know who's good at segways? Not me today, apparently. Luckily, that seems to have escaped the notice of all the people who generously took the time to review the show, such as Mopoi, M-O-P, four O's and a Y, who said, I love this podcast and am so happy Moxie is so prolific, a very compelling mix of the obscure and the commonplace, and a riveting listen no matter what. Thank you, that is exactly what I am shooting for. Speaking of reviews... We've gotten some reviews on the Your Brain on Facts book for the first time in a little while. Like this one from Alicia Payne. Five stars, quite the conversation starter. If Did You Know is your favorite way to start a conversation, this book is for you. From interesting facts to share with fellow trivia enthusiasts to why we can't have nice things, things you can eat but shouldn't, and relearning a little bit of history, this book covers it all a must-read for the curious and inquisitive. And thank you so much, Alicia, for leaving that review. And if you want to hear your opinion about the show or the book read out to potentially, but not actually, millions of listeners, leave us a review. And I have it on good authority that at least some of the book reviews come from people who also generously support the show at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts so they get bonus content, they get exclusive merch discount, early access, ad-free episodes, stickers and surprise swag, you name it. So head on over to patreon.com yourbrainonfacts to check it out. And of course, if you cannot help a creator financially, the best way to help a podcast is to share it. I'd especially love if you'd share the fact you found most interesting or surprising or engaging from this week's episode. You can do it, you know, just in writing on Twitter or Facebook. You can do it on TikTok or an Instagram reel. I don't know what the kids are into these days. But what caught your brain this week? Share it out and be sure to tag the show. Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, and my podcast and voiceover life are mashed together on the TikTok, which is at Moxie LaBouche. And of course, if you need any voiceovers for your business, be it a phone menu, explainer video, or training module, moxylabouche.com. Releasing a live record is a time-honored way to deliver on the obligation to produce an album. With his band The Experience having broken up in mid-1969, Jimi Hendrix put together a new band, the Band of Gypsies, in order to make a record by the same name and get it out the door as quickly as possible. But even though the motives were entirely pragmatic, the results were pretty amazing. Recorded over two nights at the Fillmore East in New York City, specifically New Year's Eve 1969 and New Year's Day 1970, the album finds Hendrix at his incendiary best. The band went their separate ways only a few weeks later, and barely six months after that, Hendrix would be dead of a drug overdose, complicated by a medical mistake. Marvin Gaye's Here, My Dear was not an album recorded to appease a grumpy record label. Rather, he was trying to please both the court and an unhappy ex-wife. The legendary crooner and his missus, Anna Gordy, had become estranged. Marvin's remarkable cocaine habit and extravagant lifestyle meant he couldn't afford to pay her alimony. Therefore, a deal was struck. Half the royalties of Gay's next album would go to Anna. As you might imagine, Gay didn't really fancy making another masterpiece like What's Going On. Instead, he hoped to turn in something a bit rubbish, or, in his words, lazy, bad. Of course, you can never predict when genius will strike. Once Gay got going, He just couldn't help but make one of the most beautifully candid and emotionally raw breakup albums ever. Yeah, looking at you, Taylor Swift, catch up. That glowing praise aside, Gay got his original wish when the album was released, and both fans and critics gave it a collective meh. Every now and again, the double-edged sword of artistic integrity pops up. Ben Folds of the eponymous Five signed a publishing contract that he later regretted. It required him to pen a very specific number of songs each year, right down to the decimal point. The track One Down is one of a number of songs he dutifully churned out to meet the contract and details the struggle and silliness of being party to such a legally binding document. The lyrics directly address the ridiculous situation of having to write .6 of a song, as well as the temptation to give his publishing company something a bit terrible. With not a little irony, he sings, One down and 3.6 tomorrow, and I'm out of here. People tell me, Ben, just make up junk and turn it in. But I could never quite bring myself to write a bunch of s***. And if you've been wondering why you don't hear popular music used in the show more often, It's because I don't want to get my heart-shaped butt suit off. If you go back to the episode Copy Wrong from May 22, 2018, which was before I was even numbering the episodes, you can learn all about copyright infringement and what fair use is and is not. Since I am offering commentary and education on the songs, I can hopefully, as an affirmative defense, get away with it. Not all contract-fulfillers are of poor quality. David Bowie thought his contract with RCA would expire with Lodger, the third album of what is called the Berlin Trilogy. He was counting the double live album stage as two records. RCA, of course, was using different math and demanded another album to fulfill Bowie's obligation. The result was arguably his last great studio album, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. The advanced single, Ashes to Ashes, which resurrected his popular Major Tom character from Space Oddity, went to number one in the UK while performing strongly in other countries. In the US, the song had an entirely different fate, though, just missing the Billboard Hot 100 and peaking at number 101. Fashion, a direct descendant from Station to Station's golden years, followed in short order, pushing scary monsters to the top of the charts in the UK. Number 12 in America. For many fans, you need say no more than Ashes to Ashes to remind them of Bowie's creative genius. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. The album The Sisters of Mercy gave to East-West Records to finish out their contract was an abysmal techno-monstrosity entitled, and strap yourselves in, S-S-V N-S-M-A-B-A-A-O-T-W-M-O-D-A-A-C-O-T-I-T-A-T-W which is rumored to stand for Screw Shareholder Value not so much a band as another opportunity to waste money on drugs and ammunition courtesy of the idiots at Time Warner. EastWest never released the album but bootlegs are not hard to find. Remember you can always find the script and source links at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.